God, thank you for what we've just experienced with the gifts that you've given Sam. It's, it's ironic that we're talking about service and giftedness right now and then to experience the blessings of the gifts and passions that you've given to this man. And so, Lord, we uh, just thank you for bringing him to us here today. God, if I don't miss my guess, there's not one of us here today that uh, does not desire, worth wherever we might be in our spiritual growth, to, to know more about you and in that way to know you on a deeper level. Uh, God, whether we are a seeker who is interested in the things of faith or a new believer or a veteran believer, God, we, we all share one thing, and that's that we're here to learn about you. So we pray, God, that as we open your book now, that you'd speak to us, that we might understand you deeper and more meaningfully, and Lord, most importantly, that we might live out and apply that which we're going to look at in your word today. We pray these things in Christ's holy and precious name. Amen. So uh, we're talking, as I mentioned, about this whole idea of service. You know, i got to tell you, service is a really hard thing to preach about. And the reason is, is because service is not the most scintillating, sexy topic to talk about even in churches. It's true. I mean, you talk about today something like stress or talk about marriage and family or, or some certain topic going on with culture everybody wants to hear. But talk about service, and it's not like the most exciting thing that people want to talk about. I mean, just try it sometime. Try telling somebody, you know, hey, I'm going to going to serve. And they'll go, well, that's nice. Like, okay, what's after that? You know, you're going to watch reruns of MASH? I mean, you know, just like, you know, service is not exactly the most exciting thing in people's minds. And that's a tragedy. Because as we're going to see today, as we cap off this series on service, service is actually something that gets God's heart going. It's something that perks God's ears up. It's something that in which God puts His gaze on and a smile comes across His face when you and I serve. In other words, heaven applauds. Heaven looks intently upon a church that is about serving Him and others. As we're going to see, it is core to what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And so that's what we've been doing over the last few weeks is looking at this idea of service and how service can fire up our walk with Almighty God. And as we cap off this service this, this series this morning, what I want to do is share with you three things about service. Uh, two of them have to do with the why of service, why service is so important. And then the third thing this morning is going to be the how of service, that if you would all buy into the whys as to why you and I need to have a lifestyle, a habit, a regular devotion of serving God, how you can find the right area to serve Him in. That's what we're going to do this morning. So if you brought your outline, if you brought a pen and you take notes, pull out your outline. If not, you can look up here on the screen. Here's the first thing that you need to know about service, and that is that service is a primary way to know and experience God. Did you know that? Service is a primary way to know and experience God. And folks, the reason that this is so important is because when I talk to the average follower of Jesus today, guess what? They don't really get that. When I hear the average person talk about service today, they don't talk about it as a pathway, a vehicle to know Almighty God. I mean, think about this with me. When the average believer today talks about or thinks about service, and maybe he actually does it, don't they usually have some type of mindset like this driving them? I hear some people say this, well, I'm just going to give back to God what He has given me. That's what some people think. I'm just going to give back to God what He has given to me. Kind of like a tit-for-tat 
mindset. God has given me so much, so the very least I can do is show my appreciation by serving Him and give back to Him. It's payment time. This is how many people today approach service. Or another one I hear is when people say this, well, it's just my duty and obligation to serve God. You ever heard somebody say that? It's kind of like he expects it, he asks it, so I'm going to do it. It's a duty thing. We're dutiful people here in America, so it's my duty, my obligation to serve God. That's what drives me in my service. Or how about this one? Especially in the United States, I hear people say, well, I just want to help my struggling church, so I think I'll volunteer my time. Volunteerism in America is really big. I I call this the Salvation Army mindset. You know, you got an old couch and some old clothes and you don't need it. So, hey, think of your church or the Salvation Army. God must smile on that, right? That's the way that many people approach service. So think about that. We either say, well, I want to give back to God or it's my duty or obligation or I want to volunteer my time to help my struggling church. I mean, these are the mindsets that drive us in our service. And don't get me wrong, folks. Each of these alone, taken as they are, are not necessarily bad mindsets. I mean, few would argue that we don't owe God something and that we shouldn't give back to Him. Few would argue that it's not a good thing to to be obligatory in our relationship with God. Few would argue that the church doesn't need our volunteer hours. Of course they do. But each one of these, don't miss this, miss the point. And that is that the primary motivation... The main reason that God wants you and me to serve Him is none of those reasons. It is so that we might get a glimpse of Him and connect more with Him. That's why He wants us to serve. Because God knows that when we are serving Him, we're in that sweet spot spiritually, and our sights, our focus is now on Him, and we can know Him through our service. If you're not fully convinced yet, I want you to open up in your Bible to Matthew chapter 25. We're going to take a look at a story Jesus told. Matthew chapter 25, beginning at verse 35. And the context here is that Jesus is talking about the end of the age. And he's telling a parable-like story in which the king here is God. And in this particular part of the story, the king is speaking and he's talking to those who have loved and served him while on this earth. And here is what he says, beginning at verse 35. He says, For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. So don't miss what Christ is saying here. He's saying that when you and I serve others out of an overflow and love for God, God is present in that moment. And in a very real sense, we're serving Him. In other words, when we serve others, when we love other people in the name of Jesus, God says He inhabits that environment. He's there in that environment. And it's one of the primary pathways on how we get to know Him. And though, folks, I don't know exactly how all of this works because in some ways it's obviously a mystical thing. At the very least, one of the ways I believe that this works is because it deals a lethal blow to the me-first mindset that is so prevalent in our fallen souls, and it focuses our sights and realities on outside of ourselves. 
onto God and other people. And it truly becomes a pathway to know God. And what you need to know now is that for 2,000 years, and even in Judaism before 2,000 years ago, people have found an experience of God in serving Him with the gifts and passions that He's blessed them with. I love how Bill Hybels says it in his book On Service called Descending into Greatness. Look up here on the screen. He says, if you really want to live, then give yourself to God and others. Devote yourself to faithful and humble service and you will discover joy. Richard Foster in his famous book, The Celebration of Discipline, on his uh, chapter on service, says it this way. He says, when we set out on a consciously chosen course of action that accents the good of others and is for the most part a hidden work, a deep change occurs in their spirit. And anybody, folks, who has ever tried their hand at service, and I mean real sacrificial service motivated out of a humble heart that wants to know God and others, has experienced this presence of God with them. But truly, most people don't realize that serving is one of the places that puts us right smack dab in the center of experiencing God. Let me see a hand raise here. How many of you know who Agnes Boyacu is? Anybody here know who Agnes Boyacu is? Uh, Not too many of you. You're going to know who she is in about one minute, and you're going to go, aha, Because, you see, Agnes was very much raised in a Scottsdale type of environment. She was raised about 100 years ago in an upper-middle-class home. And being raised in this upper-middle-class home, she got a very good education. She had a lot of things handed to her on a silver plate. And at the age of 18, she decided to become a schoolteacher. So she became a schoolteacher at a religious school, St. Mary's, and was teaching for the next 15 years young girls geography and catechism. And so for 15 years, she devoted her life to upper-middle-class girls, helping them become more educated. The only problem was is that every day on the way to work, she had to pass by this slum-like area where all the poor people lived to get to this school. And so picture her for 15 years walking by this slum area to go minister to upper-middle-class kids. And, and finally, after 15 years, she had had enough. God clearly spoke to her heart that that's where she needed to be, not at this other school. So she went to the leaders of the school and said, I'd like to start a ministry to the poor in this slum. After a bit of prayer, they said, yes, we agree with that. This town was called Calcutta, and Agnes went on to become a minister in the slums of Calcutta, and a few years later changed her name to Mother Teresa. And everybody in this world knows who Mother Teresa is. And what's fascinating about Mother Teresa is that in the vast majority of the pictures that we see of her, she's smiling. Or she has a look of awe on her face. In other words, every picture you see of her, there's something going on in her soul that connotes life. That that connotes knowing Jesus and, and being enamored with Him. I love that picture on your right there of that little baby, just like a grandmother. She's just in awe of God's creation. And one of the things that she did over and over again in her life, and I love this about her life, is that she always linked her her service to Jesus. She always linked her service to the joy and experience of Jesus' presence that she got through serving. And it's very Matthew chapter 25. In fact, give me another click here, guys. Look at what she said at one point in her life. She said, and I quote, I see God in every human being. When I wash the leper's wounds, I feel I am nursing the Lord Himself. Is it not a beautiful experience? You see, she found something 
that many of us have yet to find yet. And some of you have found it. And it is a beautiful thing. And that is that when you serve, when you pour yourself in the name of Jesus into other people's with the passions and the gifts He has given to you, you find joy. You find peace. You find purpose. You find the presence of God in that type of environment. And that's exactly what Mother Teresa found. It's fascinating. Remember Eric Little in that movie, Chariots of Fire. He said the same thing of his own life. Remember that when he made that famous statement that he feels God's pleasure when he runs. He was made to run. He was made to run fast. That's what God had him do. He eventually became a missionary too. But he said, I feel God's pleasure when I run. He discovered what God made him good at. And when he served others, when he honored God, he could sense his smile. Truly, the pathway to knowing God, a key pathway, is through this idea of service. Now, but we need to move on. So let me share with you a second reason that we serve God. And this is also going to surprise some of you. And it's this. And that is that service is God's action plan to build His church and advance His kingdom on this earth. It's true. Service is God's action plan to build His church and advance His kingdom on this earth. Now bear with me here, folks, and catch the logic behind this point. As all of us know, every good leader and every good organization and business has a plan. Give me a head nod that we all get that, right? It's like Leadership 101. And if you're going to do anything in this world, you got to have a plan and you better make it a good one. And what you need to know is that with God, it's no different. He has a plan for this world. He has a plan for our church. He has a set purpose to accomplish. And we talk about it all the time here at Scottsdale Bible Church using three words. What are they? Win, build, and send. That's God's plan for Scottsdale Bible Church. That's His plan for this world. That people who are fallen and stuck in their sins might find forgiveness in Christ and were to win them to faith in Christ. Then they're to be built up and grown up in their faith, becoming more love-filled and faith-filled followers of Jesus. But it doesn't even stop there. Then we're to be sent back out into our culture, wherever He might call us, to, to perpetuate the winning and building process. Theologians call this a redemptive plan. The fact that God is all about redeeming a lost world to Himself. That's His plan. That's what the New Testament and the Bible talks about. And yet, get this, what many fail to realize is that in addition to this plan, God also has a very clear and powerful strategy to accomplish His redemptive plan. I mean, it's almost like God went to Harvard Business School or something like that. He's got a plan, He's got a vision, He's got a strategy, or maybe we stole it from God, which is a whole other discussion. So the reality is God has a plan, and now He has a strategy. I want to read for you His strategy. You're going to like this. It's found in the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, verses 7, and then I'm going to read verses 10 through 12, then verse 16. You're going to like this. This is God's strategy for accomplishing His winning, building, sending plan. He says, But grace has been given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave some to be apostles, prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers, now get this, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. 
And it might sound complicated, but just catch what's going on here. God has a plan. His plan all surrounds the gospel, his message of love, compassion, forgiveness, and truth to a lost world. And yet this plan goes out through his church. We become his mouthpiece, as we've been learning about in this series. But don't miss that this plan also hinges on a church that is strong and built up. It says that there twice in verses 12 and then 16, that God's church must be strong, that God is all about building up and strengthening his church. Why? Because as we're his hands and feet, we're the carriers of the gospel message to a lost world. And the church gets strong, here's a knockout punch, when individual members serve. That's what Ephesians 4 is telling us. That when we equip each other to serve, to use the gifts He has given us, this strengthens the body when each part does its work. And the point is simply that even if just one part of the body of Christ does not do its part, then everything suffers. Just like a car that has maybe three tires rather than four or seven pistons rather than eight, it's not going to go anywhere fast. And God says it's the same with the church. If one part is missing, if one part is not in play, if just one member is not using his or her gifts to make a dent in this world, then the whole thing suffers. God actually says that. Some of you are saying, Jamie, you're just speaking in hyperbole. You're just trying to motivate 5,000 people to serve and telling me that if I'm the one not serving, then the whole thing's going to suffer. No, I'm not just doing that. God says that. But we don't have time to look at the passage today. We read part of it last week. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, if you read past verse 10, that whole chapter goes on to talk about this analogy of the body of Christ. Remember, we talked about that in the first week, the body of Christ. And it's interesting, in 1 Corinthians 12, it says that there are are seemingly parts of the body that don't play a very important role. We all know that, right? But it says that these parts of the body, the body of Christ, are actually, and here's the word the NIV uses, indispensable. That the parts of the body that we don't think are all that important. Some of you who think, well, if I got involved in service, I mean, what dent would it really make? The Bible says, incredible difference. Why? Because in the hands of God who is building and strengthening His church, we are all needed. And without all of us, there's a lack. Something's missing. That's what the Scriptures affirm. Every part doing its part, every part mattering when it comes to the kingdom of God. It's just that important. I remember back in uh, 1998, I was pastoring in Detroit, and I had something kind of humorous happen to me. Uh, we at that time had obviously much younger kids. They were all little toddlers and, at that time. And uh, Kim wanted to do something fun and educational. She wanted to breed our dog. Have any of you ever gotten that harebrained idea in your head to breed the dog? And at that time we had a, a purebred miniature schnauzer named Jacques. It was just a great little dog. And so Kim bought another miniature schnauzer and we called her Annie. And we said, you know, go at it and uh, to start to breed. And, uh, and, and, and so Annie got pregnant. And uh, Kim was going to deliver these things at home and all that and make it an educational thing for the kids. And we're all excited. And, and we lived in a very, very small house. We were just starting out in the ministry. And uh, two bedrooms upstairs, small ones, two downstairs. And Kim and I inhabited one of the upstairs bedrooms along with baby Paul back then. And then the girls had the two bedrooms downstairs. And I'll never forget one night at three in the morning, I heard this, this blood-curling scream. We all know what it was now, but at the time in my disorientation, all I could think of was my girls. 
I'm upstairs. That always made me a little bit nervous. The girls are downstairs. So at 3 in the morning, I jump out of bed. I hear this scream, and I bolt down the stairway. And when I get to the very last stairway, we had hardwood floors. I missed it with my left foot because it was dark, and I jammed my left foot into the hardwood floor. At that time, I didn't know it, but I broke my fifth metatarsal bone. That's the bone that leads up to your little toe. I hit it so hard that I snapped the bone right in half. Obviously, I fell on the ground there, and in my disorientation, I looked up, and there's Annie howling because she's about to give birth. She ended up only giving birth to one puppy. Jock was not quite the man we thought he was, but we had (laughs) one puppy there. So anyways, I'm on the ground, broken foot, looking at the dog. And this is a true story. My wife comes to the top of the stairways, hearing this howling tune, going, what's happening? And I said, I broke my foot. And then Annie starts to yell. She runs right by me to the dog. (laughs) And for the next hour, nobody cares about dad and his broken foot. It's just this dog. So I got up the next day, and, uh, and, I, and I went to the doctor, and sure enough, it was a clean break, and they, they put a cast on it, and for the next five, six weeks, I was in a cast. Now, here's my point. I never knew how important your fifth metatarsal was. Did you? <laughs> I mean, I couldn't jog. I could barely walk. I couldn't drive very well, a car. I, I mean, a seemingly insignificant bone. Whoever thinks about that bone? I don't. But I couldn't do any of the normal things that I do. Kim called me an old man, but even after the cast came off and after six months I could jog again, every time the weather changed, remember Midwest weather up in Detroit? Every time the moisture went, it would hurt for like two years. I was like, wow, a little bone. playing such a big role. And you see, that's exactly God's picture of the church. He says, you know what, there are some parts that are going to be seemingly small, but those seemingly insignificant roles, don't kid yourself, are indispensable in what God wants to do in and through us, the church. And you never know how God will use you. You never know how He might empower your service. F.B. Meyer tells a great story in his classic little book, The Musts of the Christian Life. It's only five chapters long, and one of the chapters is called The Must of Service. And in this story, in this chapter, he tells the story of Stephen Grillet, who was a Quaker missionary from Britain uh, up in Canada in the early 1800s. And he tells the story that at one point, uh, Grillet heard God's uh, still small voice tell him to go in deep into the wilderness to where the lumberjacks were and preach the gospel. So he dusted off his best evangelistic sermon, and he headed out deep into the Canadian wilderness. When he got to the place that the lumberjacks were supposed to be, it was empty and deserted. They had finished their work there and decided to move on. But he had no idea where they were to move on. So he was about ready to pack it up and leave when he, he th- thought to himself, you know, I really sensed I heard God say to come out here and preach. And even though there's nobody here, I'm going to serve him and I'm going to preach. So picture Grillet there in the wilderness preaching the gospel of Christ, this fiery sermon about Jesus to nobody just out there in the open air. And as the story goes, when he got done, he left. Eventually he went back to, to Britain, and eight years later he was crossing the London Bridge when a man came up to him, this is a true story, and said to him, I know you. You were that guy who was preaching out in the woods that day. And Curly said, I, I didn't think anybody was there. He said, we weren't supposed to be. He said, I was the foreman of the lumberjack crew. And he said, and we had already moved on. But a couple of our guys forgot some stuff back there. And so it was my job to go back and get some of the tools we forgot. 
He said, as I got close to the camp, I heard this guy preaching uh, and, and I didn't want to disturb you. So I stood off at a distance and I listened to what you have to say. And he said, and when you got to the end of that sermon and called people to repent and to believe in Christ, he said, I responded. And that day I became a Christian. And he said, I just wanted to thank you. I've been trying to track you down for eight years because you were the one who led me to the Lord. Folks, you never know how God is going to use your, your feeble act of service. You never know how He might empower it. Imagine what would happen if Grelay had been like so many Christ followers and said, you know what, it just doesn't seem to be that big. There's nobody here. I'm not doing it. The kingdom would have be at least one less person, wouldn't it? And so imagine if you and I don't band together as the church and each one of us do our part, whatever that might be for you, the kingdom hurts, the kingdom suffers. That's what God clearly outlines in His Word. And so please realize that we serve because we get to know Him. And we serve because we get to be a part of the greatest thing ever to hit planet Earth, the Gospel of Christ. And once we get this, the only question becomes then, well, how, Jamie, do I get involved in the right area of service, right? In other words, if you're buying into this at all, folks, the question becomes, well, okay, I'm motivated to serve, but how do I find an area that's best for me when it comes to service? And this is a great question because I'm a realist, folks, and I know that some of you have tried service before, and let's be honest, you found it laborious, dry, and not all that fulfilling. It just didn't scratch where you itch. If you and I were having a cup of coffee this morning, and I'd say, why aren't you involved in service right now? You'd say, Jamie, I just got to be honest with you. It didn't deliver when it came to the spiritual fulfillment, purpose, and joy that you're talking about. And you'd say, so what gives? And here's the answer. It's the last point that we need to see this morning and in this short little series, and it's this. Look up here on the screen, and that is that the key to finding a meaningful place of service is to discover and use your spiritual gifts. I'm telling you, this is what separates the men from the boys, the women from the gals, is that out of those who serve, those who serve from a sense and knowledge of what God has made them good at, we'll see what that means in a minute, your spiritual gifts is what leads to the fulfillment and the longevity and the joy in your service. I want you to turn your Bibles to one last passage this morning. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 10. And I want you to look at what it says about how God has wired us to find a meaningful area of service. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 10. It says, Now to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. I love the clarity of Scripture. Three things you don't want to miss here. First, it says to each one. It says that in the beginning at verse 7, and then it says it again in verse 11 there. To each one. Meaning that if you are a follower of Jesus, if you are breathing here today, He has given you a spiritual gift. Case closed. Second thing you want to notice there is that to each one has been given this manifestation of the Spirit, which we know is a spiritual gift. What's a gift? It's simply an area of strength. 
an area that you excel in above the rest. It's what once some theologians call a divine endowment. Simply an ability that God has given you by the Holy Spirit to serve Him. And then it lists some of them here. Wisdom, faith, prophecy, healing. And in other passages, which I'll share with you in a second here, or other places in the Bible, it lists even more gifts. At least 22 different spiritual gifts are listed in the New Testament alone. And some see some more in the Old Testament. We cover that in the seminar. And why is all of this done? That's the third thing you need to notice. Verse 7, so that the Spirit might work in and through us for the common good. We've seen this simply to build up the body and advance the kingdom on this earth. And the reason that this is so important, folks, is because if you ask the average follower of Jesus today, try this sometime, what his or her spiritual gifts are, you're going to get that infamous deer in the headlights look. I promise you. I do it all the time, not to put people on the spot. It's just that I'm interested in this stuff. I'll just say, you know, what's your spiritual gift? And they just either don't answer it. If they do answer it, they give me an answer like I did when I first got asked that question back in 1989 where I said, well, you know, I, I like to read the Bible and I, I like to pray and I like to go to church and, you know, oh, eh, those like aren't the right answers. Those are nice things to do, but those aren't spiritual gifts. You see, the average person, follower of Jesus' day serves but doesn't serve from an area of giftedness. And could that be the problem? I mentioned to you uh, last week that this idea of understanding your gifts revolutionized the way that I have served God. That uh, it was back in 1981 that I became a Christian and that I didn't really discover what gifts God had given me until about 1989. And so for those eight years in between, I did youth work which is exactly where they start, young guys who have a passion for God. And so nobody asked me, do I have a passion for youth work? And am I gifted in the areas that I do? I just did it. And, uh, and it was in 1989 that I got, I got revolutionized when I understood where God had gifted me and the passions he'd given me. What I didn't mention is that Kim, my wife, who I married in 1988, had a very similar experience. You see, she became a Christian a few years before me when she was in junior high school. We were born in the same small hometown. And, uh, but like a lot of people, she, she, you know, served God, but never from a sense of her giftedness. Our first marriage fight was over this idea of service. We got married in 1988. We moved to Chicago and, and I was on staff with the youth organization and halfway through my graduate program and she was a school teacher and, and, uh, came youth night on Monday night. And I said, you know, to her, very first week we're married, I said, it's youth night. I said, let's go out and serve the youth. And if you guys know my wife, I mean, she's a no nonsense gal and she said, I'm not going to go serve the youth. And I said, why not? She said, I don't have a passion to work with youth. Neither do you, but that's another story. So why, why are you... She's like, why are you going to serve the youth? And I, and I did. I said to her, I said, well, don't you love the Lord? You know, and she's like, what, what's, of course, what does that have to do with it? She said, yes, I do, but, I, but I'm not doing that. And we got in a big fight over it, and I lost. And so uh, she's like, I love Jeff Allen. Jeff, you ever heard Jeff Allen once say when he got married, his dad said to me, he said, son, for the rest of your life, you have one or two choices. You can either be right or you can be happy. And uh, <laughs> Jeff Allen said, after 20 years, I'm a happy, happy man. But uh, I've learned some similar things. And uh, so we got through that thing. And then, as I mentioned, in 1989, a year later, we went through a, a gift discovery thing at our, at our very first church that we served at. And I got to tell you, it revolutionized my wife's approach to service. Interesting. I, I mentioned last year I'm gifted in teaching and leadership. Kim has a totally different gift mix. She, she was gifted in discernment and in giving and in helps. Isn't that fascinating? That's my wife. She's very discerning in people. 
and in things. She loves to give. If she's making something, I go, oh, what are you making? Thinking, you know, me, and it's never me. It's always for somebody else. She, she just loves to give. Very liberal in her, in her giving. And, uh, and, and then she loves to help. Uh, a gift of helps is somebody who walks into a room and in a very informal way, if there's something needs to be done, that person is Johnny on the spot right there. My wife has three amazing gifts and she pours her energy into those areas of giftedness. You see, when you discover where your gifts are, all of a sudden service goes from black and white to technicolor. It becomes meaningful and that joy that we talk about kicks in. And so the real question I want to leave you with here this morning, we've got just a few minutes left, is how has God wired you up? What kind of gifts has He given you? What areas do you excel in that He wants you to serve in? We teach it differently in the seminar, but just to to wet your whistle on this, uh, the Bible talks about all different kinds of gifts. And people have tried to classify them in different ways over the last 2,000 years. And one of the classifications I like is people who break down the different gifts, this will be helpful for some of you, into hand gifts, heart gifts, uh, mouth gifts, and head gifts. Isn't that cool? Hand, heart, mouth, and head. And you see, some of you have been gifted with your hands. These would be spiritual gifts like helps, craftsmanship, and giving. You just love to use your hands to serve God and others. Some of you have been gifted with your heart. Uh, these are gifts like hospitality, shepherding, mercy giving. You just love to pour your heart into other people. God empowers that and uses that. Some of you have been gifted like me with your mouth. In other words, you're the encouragers, the teachers, the creative communication, the singers, the evangelism people, the leadership people. God uses you when you open your mouth. Some of you have been gifted with your head. You're the administrators, the knowledge, the wisdom people. Uh, the discerners among us. Do, do you see how it all fits together? I love the great illustration somebody gave a few years back that is so simple but so profound. They said, you know, you can tell somebody's giftedness by the way they respond to a slight emergency. So you're sitting in a room and all of a sudden somebody spills, say, a cup of coffee. And you can see by the people around them, you know, uh, what kind of gift they have. Because if you spill a cup of coffee, the hands people are going to do what? Let me help you. I mean, somebody grab me a towel. You know, they, they help them. What, what do the mouth people do? You know, they're kind of the encouragers and the teachers. You know, they go, hey, you spilled a cup of coffee there. You know, if you, if you hadn't put the cup right on the edge there and tipped off, it, let me teach you how to... Mouth people do that, don't they? We know people like that, you know? And then, and then what do the heart people do? Oh, a cup of coffee spilled. Bless your heart. I'm so sorry. You know, and the, the mercy's just flowing out of them. And, and then, the, who have I forgotten here? i got the hands, the heart, the mouth. Oh, the head people. Don't you love them? You know, they're the administrators. Susie, Susie, get a rag. All right, and you, you start mopping it up right here. And you, you get out of the way. You know, and the, the, the administrators just go nuts with something like that. We need to have a plan to make sure it doesn't happen again. It's just amazing how God has wired up people just to help with a cup of coffee. Now, broaden that to the whole rest of the church. Amen? With every area of service, all we have to do with kids and teens and outreach and missions and all that we do around here, all these gifts floating out, you can now see how if we're not doing our part, something's missing. And so there's three kinds of people here today. And with this, we're done. Some of you are surveyors. You're surveyors. You're the kind of people that are kind of on the car lot surveying the car, but you're really not interested in buying. In fact, you have no intention of buying you're sort of just checking out the lot. 
In church circles, we call you seekers. You haven't yet found what you're looking for, but you're interested. You're, you're interested in Christ and the things He might have to offer. And I am thrilled that you're here. And you are welcome to be here at Scottsdale Bible to continue to survey and seek among us. Second kind of group we got here today, though, if you're familiar with used car buying, is we have also the tire kickers here today. Uh, tire kickers are the kind of people who love to come on a car lot, and they're more engaged than surveyors. They like to get in a car and feel the dashboard, maybe even take it for a test drive. They kind of like to kick the tires, but deep down, you know, they're really not going to put any money down, right? I mean, used car dealers really don't like tire kickers, but pastors love tire kickers because at least you're here. And at least you're checking things out and you're here every Sunday and you're listening to a sermon and you're singing some songs and that's great. But my goal is to get you to buy. Volkswagen has that that great marketing thing called Drivers Wanted. Remember those commercials? Drivers Wanted. That's a good motto for a church and for pastors. We want people who are going to drive, who are going to get involved in service. Because you see, that's the third thing, the third group of people we have here. And Scottsdale Bible is made up of thousands of these folks Give me a click here because I'm forgetting. That's right. And it's called experienced and serious buyers and drivers. In other words, it's those of you who learned years ago and you make up the heart of this church that it's not just about coming on Sunday and hearing a sermon and singing some songs, but it's about using the gifts and passions God has given you to give. And I believe that as all of us go from surveyor to tire kicker to experienced buyers and drivers, our church will grow and deepen and mature. And that's why, by the way, we set the goal this year of 75%. We, that's not a magical number. We just felt that God was leading us to say three-quarters, a minimum of three-quarters, of those who call Scottsdale Bible Church their home involved on the playing field. Because as that happens, look out. As I said last week, I don't think we'd have a problem with evangelism. I don't think we'd have a problem with penetrating this community with the love and faith of Jesus in a way that a church should. So are you with me? I hope you are. I can't wait to see what God is going to do in and through us. Let's pray. Father, thank you that uh, your word is, again, so clear to us about what our lives need to be about as we follow you. And Lord, uh, for years, many of us have have heard of this idea of service and have been somewhat interested in it. Maybe we've even tried it at times. But Lord, like so many Christians, we just haven't tried it in the way you've asked us to, with passion, with giftedness, fueling. Uh, our motivation and our motivation being to know you and to build your church and so god with those things that we've learned today tucked away in our spiritual arsenal i pray god that you would help us to be doers of the word not just hearers the lord if today touched anybody in a deeper level that lord they would act upon what they have learned here and that lord you would benefit or you would broaden the kingdom and this church as well god thank you for this thing called service it might not be exciting in some quarters but we thank you that it's very exciting to you We want to get on board with what you're doing. So we pray these things only and always in Jesus' holy and precious name. And the whole church says together, amen. God bless you. We'll see you next week.